pleases us, who indwells every person who have believed in Jesus for everlasting life. And we thank you for your word. We are privileged to have it in our own language, and we can have as many copies as we would like. We thank you for that and for those who made that possible by your hand throughout the centuries. And Lord, we thank you for this day and the freedom we enjoy to meet in this building on this campus, for those who went before us, who provided for this campus. And Lord, as we look forward to the days that you give us, may we be faithful and courageous to follow you wherever you lead us. I thank you for each one here. We thank you for our guests who are with us today, those who have returned from long travels and faraway places. And we thank you for them, Lord, and thank you that you are faithful and that you are teaching us today through the proclamation of your word, through your truth. And I pray that my words would be accurate and that uh, each one of us would remember and allow you to apply your truth to our lives as you see fit. Thank you for our children down in the children's church as well as in the nursery, for those who minister to them and serve in those arenas. And we pray that each one would grow in Christ today. We do thank you for our country, pray for our president, others in leadership, that they'd have a heart to seek your wisdom and not their own. And Lord, uh, we praise you and thank you for the freedom and for this day of life today. And for each one here and for those who could not be with us today, we pray they would even have eyes to see your blessings wherever they are this day. Praise you and thank you. Now we pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us today, for it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. If you take your copy of God's Word and turn to the little letter of James towards the end of the New Testament, towards the back of your Bibles, we have been in a study of James, and we will continue today as we travel together through James. I was thinking about life choices uh, this week, uh, maybe a little more intently than normal, but you know there are a lot of choices in life. Each one of us have probably made numerous choices this morning. Uh, like, should I wear socks that match, or should I wear socks at all? Some of those mundane things like that. Uh, but uh, there are some important choices in life also, and uh, we need wisdom as we make choices as we go through life. I've not read any studies about the average number of choices a human being makes in a day. might be an interesting uh, Google topic. Uh, but anyway, I know it is a lot of choices, and some of them we're aware of, and some of them we're not aware of. And uh, maybe that's a good thing. But I was thinking about a man named Fred. And uh, Fred uh, inherited a huge land grant. Uh, the problem was, is the land grant was in South America. He could choose either the nation of Chile or the nation of Brazil. And so he chose Brazil. And uh, about that time, the land grant in Chile, they discovered uranium, gold, and silver. And uh, so he missed out on that deal by his choice. And he went to Brazil instead, and when he got to Brazil, he could choose either a coffee plantation or a Brazil nut uh, tree plantation or orchard, whatever they're called. And he chose uh, the Brazil nuts, and immediately the bottom fell out of the world market for Brazil nuts, and uh, the coffee uh, hit an all-time high of two more dollars a pound, and so again he lost out. And Fred uh, failed to pay the taxes on the land grant, and so the government took it back and he lost it. So there he was in Brazil without anything other than a really fancy watch he had blessed himself with. And so he, he pawned that so he could get an airline ticket back to the U.S. And he wanted to leave that day, and the only destinations that were going to be up were New York and Boston. And so he chose Boston, and he noticed as he was waiting for his airplane to Boston that the airplane for New York came in, taxied in. 
loaded up, and it was a brand-new 787 with first-class service all the way through it, and it left. And then his airplane arrived for Boston several hours later, and it was a 1928 tri-motor <laughs> held together by duct tape and bailing uh, wire. And he noticed everybody on the airplane, all the pe adults on the airplane, were smoking cigars when he got on. And in the back was a whole bunch of unattended crying babies. And so that was his trip to Boston. Well, I got over the mountains of South America, and one of the engines fell off, and Fred panicked, and he made a choice. He grabbed two parachutes, strapped them on, and jumped out of the airplane. And uh, as he was falling, he tried to decide which ripcord to pull. He, uh, he pulled the right one. It didn't work. He pulled the left one, and it broke. And so he's falling, and he's in desperation. He says, St. Francis, save me. And uh, out of the clouds came this gigantic hand and grabbed him by the wrist, and he's hanging at 20,000 feet. And then he hears this voice, a gentle but inquisitive voice that says, St. Francis Xavier or St. Francis Assisi? You know, choices are important in our lives. We know that, and we need a lot of wisdom. And obviously, that's an exaggeration of the choices you and I face every day, but maybe not so much. And uh, there are choices that we make that have eternal ramifications. In the book of James, and as uh, Kelly read for us the passage we're in today, the paragraph to set the context, if you've been with us, you know that James is uh, very practical. He wants uh, shoe leather Christianity. James is not a book about doctrine. It is a book about the application of what we say we believe. And is written to believers. He constantly refers to them as brethren or my beloved brethren. And it's in the plural, which means male or female. It's not gender specific. And he's writing to believers who've been scattered because of the persecution in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1. This is the early church. James is an early book. It is the earliest book of the New Testament. If we were to arrange our New Testament chronologically at the date written, James would be the first book written. And so at this time, probably around 40 to 44, perhaps even earlier, uh, the church in Jerusalem was primarily made up of Jewish believers in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. And they'd been scattered because of persecution. And he's writing to them to encourage them, but they definitely have some problems. And so he's writing to uh, exhort and admonish them to live out their faith before a watching world in whatever environment they find themselves. And so James is writing, he wrote in chapter 3 about the difficulties of the tongue. We looked at that last week, our speech matters. And he talks about uh, that all of us stumble, he says in verse 1, let not, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as, as such we will incur a stricter judgment. In that, uh, in that day, in the first century, early first century, and especially with Jewish believers, they had modeled themselves in their gatherings after the synagogues that they'd grown up in. And in the synagogues, a male of a certain age could get up and teach or read God's word. And evidently there was a problem with whoever jumping up and saying things that were not quite accurate. And James is warning them that there's a stricter judgment for those who teach and represent God before the congregation. And then he tells us in verse 2 that we all stumble in many ways. And I love that little word, we. It tells us that James stumbled in many ways with our verbal proclamations with our speech, with our tongues. And he goes on to describe the tongue. And he uses a number of examples. He said a horse can be controlled by that small bit. A large ship can be controlled in a storm by the rudder. These two small things control very powerful things. And yet who can control the tongue? 
Uh, the tongue is a very small part of our physical bodies, and yet who can really control it? He goes on to talk about how it's a fire, and it can create great firestorms, our speech, and we all know that. We know how speech can just stay with us. Many of you and many of us remember words spoken in haste from our childhood, perhaps. It wounded us or wounded others, and they remain to this day. And relationships have been broken. Churches have been destroyed because of tongues that are set on fire, as James said, by the very fire of hell. And so it's a very serious thing. He talks about this, and it talks about who can control the tongue. Well, the answer is, is only God control it as we submit ourselves to God's Holy Spirit And he reminds us that uh, we cannot uh, continue just praising God and cursing people. Uh, We need to be ones who are guarded in our speech. And then he launches into uh, the choice about how we speak and about wisdom. And here we have this, his concern uh, about how we live our lives and make decisions. And so he asks the question, and it's really a problem, uh, are you a wise person? Let me propose that 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 question to you today. Are you a wise person? James puts it in the form of a question because it is a problem. He says, who among you is wise? He looks at the corporate entity of believers gathered together, and he's basically saying, look around, and who's the wise one in your midst? And if I were to ask this morning that you pick out the wisest person in this room and have them stand, we would all go, oh, I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that. But it gets personal when I ask the question, are you a wise person? That is a problem, isn't it? Because we, you know, basically we don't want to puff ourselves up. The normal person doesn't want to put themselves forward and claim something that perhaps is not true. But we're just not sure, are we? Well, I guarantee you that by the end of this message, by the time we go through this passage, you will know for sure as you analyze your own life and those around you, whether you have the wisdom of heaven or the wisdom of hell or worldly wisdom. You will know for sure as you analyze and look at your life, as I have been doing all week. So are you a wise person? In verse uh, fourteen or 13 there, who among you is wise and an understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. There are four keys here in this one verse. There are four keys. First of all, there's a seeking heart. Who among you? Who is wise among you? There is this aspect where we need to be desirous and seeking of wisdom. In fact, the Proverbs, I added some of the verbs on the, or some of the ver- verses on the back of your bulletin insert from Proverbs. If you want to read a whole book about wisdom versus foolishness, go to the book of Proverbs. Great read, but those are just some examples. But there is one with a seeking heart. Who is wise among you? And James is really asking a rhetorical question here. A rhetorical question is one which anticipates and expects a certain answer. Uh, Wisdom here, Sophia is the Greek word, describes one with moral insight and skill in the practical issues of life. He's not talking about who is the smartest guy in the bunch. He's asking who has the most wisdom. And are you a wise person? Because there's a difference between intellect and education and wisdom. Wisdom is intellect and intellectual uh, pursuits uh, uh, adapted to life. And secondly, he talks about making sensible choices, Not not only having a seeking heart for wisdom, but a sensible choice. Who has understanding among you? Who has understanding? 
And that's a different word, and it refers to intellectual perception. In other words, that we commit ourselves to understanding what wisdom is and allowing God to apply it to our lives. So a seeking heart, sensible choices, and a solid life in the rest of that verse. Demonstrate by good behavior. Demonstrate by good behavior. That's a solid life in deeds. He talks about deeds there, good deeds. Here is the original show and tell. You remember show and tell in grade school? I don't know if they even still do that. But when I was in grade school, they did show and tell. And you were supposed to bring something from home and talk about it in front of the class and explain to them. And so all the overachievers, they'd bring a pony or their dad who was a policeman in his uniform, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I would dig around at the last minute and I would come and I'd say, here's a, here's a furnace duct from my dad's shop. You know, that's all I know. And uh, so show and tell. And here is what James is telling us. He wants us not only to tell about our faith, but to show it in deeds. Wisdom is not measured by degrees, but by deeds. It is not a matter of acquiring truth in lectures, but applying truth to life. And that's always the question. When we leave here on a Sunday morning, and you've heard a passage proclaimed, exposited for you, uh, what difference does it make? That is the fundamental question for you to answer as you go through the hours and the days ahead of us after you hear someone declare the word of God. So a solid life. And then fourthly, a spirit of gentleness, demonstrated with gentleness. A good life and deeds are best portrayed by the humility of wisdom, or wise meekness is the word that should be translated there. A truly wise person is humble. Now, in our culture, in our society, uh, the word meekness equates with weakness. We think of meek people as being weak, and yet weakness, meekness is not weakness, but it is power under control. Listen to Jesus' words out of Matthew eleven twenty nine: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble, meek is the word there, in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice that that is a promise. We follow this one who is meek and gentle, and you will find rest for your souls. A lot of people make promises on the, uh, in social media, in our, in our uh, news media, in our p- politics, even our families, we make promises. But who has the power to carry that out? Only Jesus Christ can help us to find rest for our souls, and he is gentle and he is meek. And so the question is, are you a wise person? And now James is going to tell us about two different types of wisdom. The Bible teaches us that there is worldly wisdom and there is heavenly wisdom. And here James declares them for us. And worldly wisdom, he's going to describe in verses 14 through 16. And it's the portrait or a picture of a person who is exploiting worldly wisdom. It is the fruit, if you will, of living a life of choices that are based on worldly wisdom. Look at verse 14 with me. It says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. A number of years ago now, I was uh, diagnosed with atrial fibrillation in my heart. And uh, AFib is what it's called. And so they went in and they very invasively put a camera in there and looked around, decided what was wrong. And then I had an ablation over in Seattle 
which is where they go in and they cauterize the electrical impulses or the, the nerves are doing, they're misfiring, basically. And I'm pretty sure when I went into surgery, I saw a car battery and some jumper cables. I think that's how they did that. But anyway, they, they fixed it, but they had to be invasive. They had to go into the heart to deal with the issue. They couldn't just put a mustard plaster on my chest and call it good. It was invasive. And this is what James is doing to us, to us with worldly wisdom. He is being very invasive about it because worldly wisdom produces a kind of a spiritual heart disease that destroys unity, kills joy, evaporates prayer, dulls the appetite for God's word, and deadens our worship and turns the focus from winning the loss to winning an argument. And if you've been a Christian very long, you've been in churches where that is the case. Sad to say, and it goes on rampantly around us today. And with that in mind, let's carefully consider this passage because we're all in danger of harboring wrong attitudes and seeking the world's wisdom. And these verses, he talks about the function, the foundation, and the fruit. In verse 14, we see the function. It is the heart problem. He tells us there's bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, and do not boast or be arrogant and so lie against the truth. I did a Greek study on the word jealousy and looked at uh, the B-A-G. That's the big lexicon for Greek language, and it means jealousy, okay? We know what that means. These are very clear. That's one thing about James is he's very upfront and clear in his declaration. Zane Hodges, who uh, has written a great commentary on the book of James, he describes verse 14, to behave in the way, I'm quoting Zane Hodges, to behave, behave in the way James is describing is to boast against the truth. Uh, it's about mercy triumph. It's not about mercy triumphing over judgment. The probable meaning here is that a person who dares to wield the truth of God as an instrument to satisfy his own envy and self-seeking as he professes to teach the truth is guilty of triumphing over the truth. That is, this person arrogantly tramples down the truth as if it were a thing subordinate to his own personal ambition. When you look at verse 14, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, that's all about us, isn't it? When we live that way, when we allow that type of work to come out of our lives, that is all about us, not about others, and certainly not about God. Verse 15 is the foundation, the world's wisdom. He tells us where this comes from. Look at verse 15. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Earthly, natural, and demonic. In other words, that's the origin, the source, the foundation of worldly wisdom. And it may sound good and sound smart in sound bites on social media, wherever it is, but all bottom line is it's earthly, natural, and demonic. And then the fruit or the outcome in verse 16. Look at verse 16. This is what happens. For where jealousy, jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Disorder and every evil thing. That's what's going to be produced if we give ourselves over to exploiting worldly wisdom in our lives. And so that's not the path we want to go on. A truly wise person does not seek glory or gain. He is gracious and giving. In verses 17 through 18, we have the uh, flip side of this or the contrast, and that's the portrait of a person exercising heavenly wisdom. In verse 17, it's really a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life, you are called the Christian. 
A Christian means little Christ or Christ follower. And so here is a picture of what it means to be a Christ follower. There are eight marks of heavenly wisdom in verse 17. Let me read through 17 again for us. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. The first thing that we see, the mark of heavenly wisdom, is that it is pure. It is pure. We think of Christ, he is 110% pure. God himself is nothing but pure. There is no shadow of sin that taints the Godhead, taints the Trinity. This is a picture of God's purity. It's free of moral contamination, of envy and self-seeking. Back in verse 16, it is marked by true devotion to who and what God is. And when we make decisions and choices, and if we really want to exercise heavenly wisdom, the first question to ask ourselves is, this choice, is it pure? Is it going to honor God? Is it going to be good for others? The second one is peaceable, peaceable, and is concerned about harmony with and among the brethren. It is peaceable. It is not something that causes discord and disruption and every evil, evil thing. The third one is gentleness, uh, gentleness or kind, if you will. And then reasonable, willing to yield or compliant is the fourth one. This kindness and compliancy means that such wisdom does not rigidly insist on its own way, but is graciously anxious to go out of its way for other believers. Uh, We will see later in chapter 4, verse 1, if you look at that verse, what is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? He's going to really hammer down on this disruption within the body of Christ. The last three characteristics of peace, gentleness, reasonableness, uh, in the Greek language, they all begin with what we call the letter E, epsilon, and they are alliterative, and as they put them together, James arranges them here that describe the the tendency of a person with these characteristics to display them all. So the first four is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, willing to yield, basically. Five through eight is this, full of mercy, not seeking retribution. You know, how often do we want our rights, we demand our rights, the flesh wants what it wants, when it wants it, and we demand all those things, and he is telling us we're full of mercy, like God, like Jesus Christ, is not full of retribution. Full of good fruits, in other words, good deeds, produce. We want to have good deeds that God prepares beforehand so that we would walk in him, the Apostle Paul later tells us in Ephesians 2.10 unwavering, you know, not pushed around by every wind of doctrine, not pushed around by every fad that comes our way, but unwavering in our stand for Jesus Christ and without hypocrisy, without hypocrisy, not saying one thing on Sunday morning and living out another thing the rest of the week. Uh, That is hypocrisy. In short, along with all of those qualities, There are aspects, these are all aspects of good conduct. Remember, James is concerned with how we live out our faith. Very practical. How do I live tomorrow at the workplace, at the school? Oh, never mind school, you're on spring break. So how do you live when you travel? How do you live in all those things in your neighborhood, in your family? James is concerned about that. Uh, He wants uh, the words that are powerless in themselves to be lived out in faith. In verse 18, he talks about peacemakers sow righteousness. Look at verse 18. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
And then he'll launch into chapter 4 based upon that. Peace is the seed sown and and it yields a harvest of righteousness. Now we live in an agricultural area and farmers are planting. The ag world is starting to gear up and go. And uh, we want to see a great harvest. And yet we know that you've got to put the seed in the ground. And if you want to see righteousness in your life, we sow peace. The truly wise person is a person of peace. And uh, to achieve righteousness, spiritual maturity, practical holiness, that's what James is concerned about. That's the theme of the book of James. We as believers must learn to speak with care, to measure our words. Are they building people up or are they tearing them down? And as I said last week, our words are not only just person-to-person, face-to-face, but social media, uh, all those connections we have where we have opportunities to communicate. A controlled tongue is possible only with cultured thought. We need to think about these things. A mouth filled with praise results from a mind filled with purity. And so how do we answer worldly wisdom? Because it's all around us. All we have to do is look in the daily news to see lots of worldly wisdom going on around us, uh, which is earthly, natural, demonic, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, Uh, Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. We see it all around us, and we tend to practice it also. I was reading about uh, Tim Ferneris. He was a computer analyst back in 1998, and he worked part-time for, I think, 40 bucks a week as a groundskeeper for the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, he is the one who retrieved Mark McGuire's 60-second home run ball, and he became famous because he didn't hold on the ball to send it, or to sell it, uh, he gave it back to Mark McGuire without expecting anything in return. It could have been sold for a million dollars because it was a record-breaking home run that year, that ball. And uh, there was a columnist named Daniel Cadlick, and he called it an honorable gesture, but he really questioned the wisdom of uh, Tim Fornius in giving it back. Uh, He made this point that you need to sleep on decisions before you make them, avoid herd thinking, and treat found money seriously. All very practical advice in his column. Uh, Not surprisingly, Tim Fornarius wrote back to the columnist, and here's what his thoughtful uh, response was, his uh, explanation of his actions. And this is quoting Tim Fornarius. First of all, despite what you've wrote in the article, I did not get $5,000 worth of McGuire stuff. I did not ask for any memorabilia, and I did not receive any. According to Mr. Cadlick, my first sin was the impulse decision to give the ball back to Mr. McGuire immediately. But my decision was by no no means made on the impulse. I had thought over what I would do if I got a home run ball and discussed it with my family and friends. Also, I can assure you that I was not influenced by herd thinking. What did influence my actions was my family and my background. I have always been taught to respect others and their accomplishments. I value all people's achievements, big and small. In my opinion, Mr. McGuire deserved not only the home run record for his work, but also this ball. Life is more more, about more than just money. It is about family, friends, and the experiences you have with them. As for my third financial sin of easy come, easy go, I believe some possessions are priceless. To put an economic value on Mr. McGuire's hard work and dedication is absurd. Being the person who received the ball was a great blessing to me, and being able to return it to Mr. McGuire was a real honor and a thrill. I would still not trade that experience for a million dollars. And so there is a man who is answering worldly wisdom 
with an integrity of his heart. And I don't know anything about Mr. Tim Fornarius, but I thought at least he's got integrity in what he's doing. And so true wisdom uh, lived out in us really changes our environment, changes people around us, changes the world essentially. And there's an obvious message in the book of James and that our belief should control our speech and that should result in our behavior of good deeds. If we really believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that God is gracious and merciful to us, his word is true and one day he will judge us at the beam of judgment seat, then our conduct will reveal our convictions. You know, that is so true. What is in the heart will eventually come out in speech and behavior. Before we attack those who do not have orthodox doctrine according to how we think they should, uh, we need to remember Jonah. Jonah had wonderful theology, and yet he hated the people that God sent him to, and he was angry with God. And so uh, we need to remember that what we say we believe pours out into what we do and how we function in the world. Uh, Back to James's first question, are you a wise person? Well, the tests to apply are my motives pure, am I peaceable, am I gentle with others, am I a reasonable person, am I merciful, am I walking in good deeds, am I unwavering, am I unhypocritical in things that I do? It's basically Christ-likeness. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for James. Thank you for this passage for us today. It is a lot to comprehend. It is a lot to think about in a personal way, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would apply your truth as you see fit in each one of our lives. And Lord, you know exactly where each individual within the sound of my voice is in life and what they're doing and how they're functioning. And I pray, Lord, you'd use their word, implant it in their lives in such a way uh, that we would live according to your will and your desire, and it would be a glory and a goodness to you and to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand as we sing our last song here?